If there are any burdened kids in the room, you guys can head out to the back, and hopefully that'll open up some space. I apologize. Uh, if you have room in the middle, in between you, maybe a, a seat or two, if you could scoot in, that'd be great. Um, if you're single, never know who you'll scoot next to. So uh, just make your way and scoot in. That would be phenomenal. There's some seats up here and some seats, I think, over here, but uh, just really good to be with you. Um, great to be here on Easter Sunday uh, with you, and uh, just if, if I could... Um, uh, if you were brought with a friend or brought with a neighbor, brought by family, not quite sure um, how you might have landed here. We know that Easter is a, a time when a lot of people that maybe don't go to a familiar space like this, they, they come and they attend. Uh, and if I could just throw them under the bus totally and completely for a moment, uh, you're here because they want you to know Jesus. So uh, just to get that out in the air, if you're wondering, like, they didn't bring you out for coffee. Hey, we're going to go out for coffee this morning. When I have coffee, you ended up here uh, with music, songs, and now a preacher. Uh, that's because they love you deeply and they want you to know the saving work that we believe is found in the personal work of of Jesus Christ. And so uh, on Easter, we get to celebrate something that really marks us as a people, and uh, it's something that we celebrate, I want you to know too, not just on Easter Sunday, but this is why we gather every Sunday and gather throughout the week and gather with the saints to declare and live out the wonderful news that Jesus is in fact alive, that he did not stay in the grave. And uh, we're here because we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ did literally and physically rise from death. We do not believe it was ethereal. We do not believe that it was an analogy. We do not believe that it was some made-up fabricated mythology. We actually believe that Jesus Christ, that his, his madness, his humanity was actually actually buried in the grave, that he was dead, and that he rose out of that, defeating death, declaring for all that sin could be forgiven and that reconciliation God could be found. So that's great news for us as Christians, and we want those of you who do not know this Jesus Christ to know this Jesus Christ and to find life, hope, joy, and peace in his name. And um, regardless of where you land this morning, you have to do something with Jesus. I mean, he's the most famous man who ever lived. He's the topic of most debates. He's in the front of the most magazine covers. He's the author of the, the best-selling book in the world, which he wrote, which is the Bible. So you have to do something with Jesus, no matter who you are, whether you are a seeker, a skeptic, a doubter, an agnostic, an atheist, uh, wherever you land, you gotta do something with the claims and personal work of Jesus Christ. And um, ironically, not ironically, really, it's in God's providence. We're walking through a gospel, the gospel of Luke, which actually talks about the life and teachings of Jesus. There are four of them. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the amazing sovereignty of God, we are finishing a two-year study in Luke today, in Luke 24, where Luke rolls out who Jesus, what Jesus did when he rose from death. And so um, we get to look at that today. It's been an amazing study. It's been a great study. Um, and so if you're just entering into this thing right now, you get like the best part of the meal because this whole book has been ramping up to Jesus ultimately shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin. We saw that on Good Friday. If you were here at Good Friday, that was a, a joy to be with you. It just warmed our hearts, prepared us well for uh, this morning to gather on Easter Sunday. But um, the story line, if you're just jumping in, you get to enjoy this, but know that there were basically promises made throughout the Old Testament for hundreds of years, and they were God's messengers and people saying, hey, we're going to prepare a way, proclaim a way, and let you know there's a deliverer coming, there's a Messiah coming, there's a Christ coming, and he is going to push back darkness and bring about restoration to all the injustice, all the sorrow, all the sickness, all the death, all the pain that the fall of man brought back in Genesis 3. And so Jesus is that Messiah, is that Christ, he enters human history, he's born of a virgin. He's born without sin. He walks an entire life perfectly obedient, the obedience we could not perform for God. He ultimately goes and dies via crucifixion. He is killed by the very religious system that believed in this Messiah to come. And as he was dead, he is buried for our sins in our place, for our in our stead as our Savior. And then he rises, validating he's God, validating forgiveness can be had, validating that the wrath of God that was towards sinners can be removed, can be appeased. And then you have him ascend back to heaven, gift his Holy Spirit to his church and say, hey, go tell everybody this great news and eventually I'm going to come back and rule and reign in a permanent kingdom that will be forever and have no end. And so we long for that day, but Luke is kind of showing us this already not yet that we live in and also what will actually come. And so uh, in Luke 24, what Luke is going to do here is show us this morning what Jesus does and says after his resurrection. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and look at Luke 24, and this is what Luke writes. And just so you know, he's consistent with every other gospel writer. He gives an eyewitness account of the people who saw the risen Jesus. 
24 verse 1, but on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, okay, this is when Jesus rose from death, at early dawn, this day, this is the women who deeply loved Jesus, they walked with Jesus, they heard Jesus teach, preach, saw him heal. Early at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. Clearly, they're not expecting a resurrection. They're bringing spices. They're going to help you know, embalm the, the, the body. They're going to help uh, lay some flowers. They're going to do what would be um, convenient for them. And as the, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed by this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? Remember, they're just reminding him of all that Jesus has been telling them. Remember, if you're a skeptic or someone trying to figure out the things of Christianity or discussing that, Jesus repeatedly made claims that this would happen. So this didn't happen by chance. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus, but no one believed him. No one believed this would actually be something that would happen. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Remember, Judas is gone, so there were no longer 12 disciples, now 11, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw linen clothes by themselves, and he went marveling at what had happened. Happens. Okay, so the women who love Jesus get to the tomb. They're expecting the funeral to continue. They're expecting to just kind of weep, maybe say some prayers, um, just mourn of the loss of a dear friend, a dear really leader to them in the sense, a, a, an example, a mentor. They didn't really think there was going to be any resurrection. As they get to this tomb, it's amazing. He's not there. These two angels show up, and they're, they're startled by this. They're frightened by this, and, and don't get surprised by that. I don't know the last thing you did when you saw an angel, but you would be terrified too. Anytime you see angelic beings, People are like, oh, I can't believe they're so afraid. No, this is an angelic, supernatural, created being of the God of the universe who shows up and declares again the truth of the scriptures that he's not here, he's risen. And guess what? He rose just like he said he would. Like he, he told you this repeatedly that he wouldn't stay in the grave. The prophecies said he wouldn't stay in the grave. And yet he is not here, he has risen. So they jet back to the apostles and they're like, would Jesus might have been telling the truth. There was, no, there was no body. I mean, these people in dazzling apparel showed up and, and told us that he's not here, that he is risen, and they can't believe it. And this is why, if, if you're a seeker of the Christian faith, you always have to take the historical and biblical accounts and put it on the dock and judge it, right? Because you've got to do something with the fact that it was women who went and found Jesus alive. The reason this matters tremendously is because in the first century, a woman's testimony was worthless. They couldn't even give any witness, eyewitness in the court of law. And so if you're gonna fabricate a story about a resurrected guy, at best you could do is make the men the liars so they can testify in court, right? But they don't do that, right? It is women who find him, even in their own circle, and this is why when they come back, the men still don't believe him because they weren't expecting a resurrection. And this is why the scriptures, friends, will always put the burden of proof on the critics and not the Christian. You have to understand that. The Bible doesn't put the burden of proof of us. It puts the burden of proof on the critic. And so it always lays out for us, man, this is a nutty, ridiculous story if these things aren't true. And why, if you were to fabricate something, would you include the things that the Bible includes? It makes no sense. So the Bible testifies for itself that it is true and not a lie. And so here what we're seeing is this culminate all in this text, the very words of Jesus who continually pointed people back to hundreds of years saying Jesus would live, Jesus would die, Jesus would rise, and this is the bedrock of our Christian faith. This is why Christianity at the end of the day is not a philosophical system. Um, this is why Christianity at the end of the day is not just based on a place. It is a historical fact, and it's based on a person. It's not just some ideology we decided to ascribe to. It is an event that we long to remember and look forward to. And that is namely that Jesus Christ was slaughtered for the sins of mankind and that he purchased righteousness for us in his death and burial and resurrection, that he reigns on high and will return again. We're thrilled about that. And so because that is true, Luke's going to continue rolling out what happens after they realize that the tomb is empty. Verse 13, that day, that's the same day, two of them, this is two of the people who were followers of Jesus, 
they were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all of these things that happened. You bet they were. I mean, you ever, you ever seen a resurrected body? No. So you'd be talking about it too, right? I mean, that'd be the talk of the town. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Everyone's talking about this missing body as it's starting to spread. And they're walking on the same day, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And this is where you just get the humor of the scriptures. This is where we see that God is just a God of laughter. I just love this encounter Jesus has with these men on this road. And there's two followers of Jesus going for a walk. One you're going to see is named Cleopas. The other one is unnamed. They're possible relatives of Jesus. And John's gospel will tell you that they were actually hiding out in Jerusalem in a hidden space because of fear of the Jews. Here's why. They believe the Jews are the ones who killed them. And so ultimately they were like, man, well, if the Jews killed them and we're followers of this Jesus, we're next. So everyone who loved Jesus and followed Jesus were hiding out in a secret place. And these two, for whatever reason, decided to make their trek back home to their village. This particular village is seven miles from home. It's called Emmaus, this village, uh, this town. And not everybody could get back. Remember, everyone was there for the Passover. So uh, some people had to stay in hiding and had to leave later. And lots of other people could leave um, more immediately. And these two are leaving. And as they're walking, they're talking. They've heard the testimony of the women that the tomb is empty. They don't believe it. And Luke tells us here that they're discussing these very facts. Now, um, Luke tells you something that's very, very important again. He, he tells you that Jesus kept up with them. That's really how it reads. Now, here's, here's why, again, you've got to read this story as people who are telling the truth that's inspired by God. Because as he's following them, let me tell you why this is so important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ historically causes so much trouble for the secular mind. Right? I mean, there are plenty of ways we try to do stuff with theories and with things that we see in the scriptures. So uh, we'll try to find ways to deal with it. One of those theories was um, when he was arrested, beaten a dozen times, had the beard yanked out of his face, he was whipped, had the flesh ripped off his back, he was spit upon, he was mocked, he had nails driven through his feet and his hands, he hung a crucified death. He did that for over six hours. Then he was buried with hundreds of pounds of embalming and spices. He was put in a tomb away after Roman soldiers thrust a sword under his rib cage, uh, out the other side to his kidneys, water and blood comes out showing he's dead. They put him in the grave. He lays there for two days. He's got over 40 hours and somehow gets up, moves the stone and does a seven mile jog with these men to Emmaus. Like, like you've got to be silly to believe this, right? I mean, you've got to be nuts to believe that this is actually true unless it was true. I mean, he just decided to go for a seven-mile run and follow these guys to Emmaus when he's got nails that were driven through his feet and he suffered what he suffered. He has to be God to do just that. Right? The last time you sprained your toe, you were hunched over for a week, right? Like wobbling. I mean, so don't mock Jesus in this. Don't think this is something miraculous that you could do. You could never do this. Something Jesus did because he was fully healed and he was fully God. And so he walks up with these guys. This is so amazing. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. They're sad because they're grieving over the loss of Jesus. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in there these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus. What things? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, just enjoy the humor of Jesus here. Uh, and you can only do that if you're God, right? So, so he says, what things? And they say to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. I love it. They start giving Jesus his autobiography. But they just start laying out from, hey, let me tell you everything about this Jesus of Nazareth. He's a man who is prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But these things have, oh, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Gives you a window into what the real hope was. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not 
see. I, I love this scene as they're walking, they're talking about Jesus because everyone's talking about Jesus. He's the topic of conversation since he entered in on Monday in his triumphal entry. And as they're discussing all these things, Jesus just comes up alongside them, yet he's not startling. He's not dazzling. He's a stranger to them. They don't yet see him clearly. They're blinded to the glorified risen son. He's not the same. He's human in his appearance, so they don't recognize him. And Jesus goes, so what are you guys talking about? And they say, are you serious? You, you didn't hear about Jesus. Now, he, he's the talk of the town. You didn't hear about this man who was prophet. He was mighty indeed. He taught the Bible like no one taught the Bible. He did more healings and miraculous works than anyone to ever come through this place. You didn't hear about how he was ultimately crucified by, by the very people who I guess we thought would love him and want him. And man, we actually thought he was going to be the, the king of Israel. We thought he was going to relieve us of this oppression from Rome, but he ended up, ended up not doing that. And so that grieves us. We thought he was our conquering hero. But now he's dead and he was buried. I don't know, he said something about on the third day rising again. And then some crazy women came back and told us that his body was gone. They said they saw angels. I mean, I don't know what it could be, but we don't really believe it. We're not buying it. So they're just discussing this, talking about this. All the while wishing he was alive. All the while in their hearts desiring that Jesus really wasn't still dead in the grave. And I love what Jesus does because they can't quite fit Jesus into their messianic theology. Because in their messianic theology, they had the Romans kill him and the leadership of the Jews reject him. So what they wanted was triumph, overthrowing enemies, conquering the world, setting up a throne. It was limited and partial though. Because what they didn't have in their bank, they didn't have this suffering servant who would die for sin, even though the Old Testament is laced with that, they would conveniently avoid that because what they really wanted was the Messiah kingdom to be set up before he ever went to a cross, never wanted to see that death, and they wanted it now. And so Jesus, in his brilliance, because he's God, wants to straighten them out and prove he's God and prove that God's plan for the resurrection of his son was plan A and not plan B. And so he says this in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that this Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. (laughs) What Jesus does is totally and absolutely brilliant. He's saying, you've got a partial look at the Messiah. You've got to get the whole thing. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things? I mean, what about all the suffering portions of the Old Testament? You guys all know that. He's telling them this. You guys have read about the suffering servant that would come and die for sin. You've read Isaiah. You've read the Psalms. You've read Leviticus. You've read all these things that point to me. So you've got this partial limited view. You don't have a full understanding of what this Messiah would ultimately do. And so Jesus goes to the Old Testament and explains to them things concerning his suffering and his death, him being that suffering servant who would die as a substitute for sinners. Let me tell you, best Bible study ever, right? I mean, imagine him being with these guys. And what's awesome is in the whole Bible study going through the Old Testament, he constantly brings them back to who? Him. The whole Bible centers around Jesus Christ. The whole Bible centers around his person, his work, his death, his resurrection. So you bet he's sitting there. He's starting in every single book going, oh, look, there's me, there's me, there's me. You want to start in Genesis? Genesis 3? Oh, I'm already proclaimed. Go back to Genesis 1. I was there creating the world. Oh, you want to go to Exodus? Yeah, I'm the one that foreshadows the Exodus. I'm going to take you out of. Oh, Leviticus? Yeah, I'm the high priest. It's going to be your high priest. You're not going to need sacrifice anymore. Oh, Deuteronomy? Yeah, I'm the one who perfectly fulfills the law for you. He just keeps going. You want, oh, there's me again, there's me again, there's me again. Because the whole Bible, brothers and sisters, centers on Jesus Christ. And if you do not have Jesus Christ as the center of your Bible, the Bible will not make any sense to you. That's why if you're visiting, you want to know the answer to almost every single question in Christianity, it circles around Jesus. That's why I always say start with Jesus. Don't start with, was it, seven-day creation, six days? Start with Jesus who talks about it. Start with Jesus who rose from the dead, and if he did, then everything that he said is true. 
And if he was not, bag it up, go home. Here we have to deal with the person of Jesus, and that's what Jesus does. He deals with himself. He teaches the word of God. And this is why there is morality in the Bible, but that's not primarily what the Bible's about. There is supernatural, there's the demonic, there's the angelic, there's tradition, there's history, there's rules, there's laws, there's commands, but did you know that's not primary? That's all secondary. The primary purpose of you seeing the written word of God is to see the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then secondarily, everything else fits under that neatly and nicely. But if you leave out Jesus, then you're making a grave error. And then, so Jesus goes to the Old Testament, methodically teaches through it, connects it all to him. They're blown away by his teaching. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Cleopas and his friend are like, hey, Jesus, join us for dinner. Not because they want to be hospitable, because they want more of his teaching. They're like, this guy teaches like no one else has ever taught. Man, our hearts burned within us. we got to have more of this teaching from the Bible, from the scriptures. And so Jesus enters their home, and they're like, okay, don't eat, just talk. Just keep teaching, keep talking, keep saying what you're saying. Their hearts are burning with desire. They really want to know these things that Jesus is saying. There's something reverberating their souls that is causing them to come towards what Jesus is saying, not being pushed away from what Jesus is saying. And I love this. Jesus hands out the bread, and their eyes are opened through the teaching of God's word. Friends, it's always been the way that spiritual eyes are opened. Notice, they're on the road. They don't recognize Jesus. They do not see him clearly. They do not see him authentically. They do not see him as he is. Right? They're, they're blinded to the glory of Jesus Christ. They're blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus opens up the Old Testament and starts teaching them the scriptures. And God uses even the teaching of the scriptures from Jesus to spiritually illuminate Cleopas and his friend to understand and see Jesus clearly. So if you're wondering why we're doing this right now on Easter Sunday, it's because this has been happening. We pray it continues to happen. For those of you that do not see Jesus clearly, do not see him as good, do not see him as loving, do not see him as saving, do not see him as rescuing, do not see him as a wrath absorber, do not see him as a cross-crucified, slaughtered lamb on your behalf for your sin in your place. If you don't see that clearly, don't see your need for a savior. The teaching of God's word is meant to illuminate your heart so you can see him for who he is. And this is why um, you can't just try to work to see Jesus clearly. You have to see him in the scriptures, the revealed scriptures. That's why he's given them to us. That's why we love teaching the scriptures here at this church. Because that's how people see Jesus and come to know Jesus. That's how they hear the truth of Jesus and believe in the truth of Jesus. Some of you maybe just, man, you have no reason not to believe and you just put God on a dock and you don't have any intellectual honesty and so you judge him with, a, with not at all the veracity you judge everything else that says he's not him but you never pick up the word of God and actually read it for yourself and judge it for yourself. And so Jesus just does that repeatedly. That was his whole ministry. I'll just preach the Bible. Go in the synagogue, preach about me. Preach about sin. I told you, I have people write often, they're like, man, all your sermons are just the same. Sin and Jesus. <laughs> yep, you got it, man. Amen. That's all we have to talk about. You're a sinner. Jesus saves. We're a mess. He's awesome. We're dead. He's alive. I mean, what else do you have to talk about? I mean, Jesus is the center of all this, so we got nothing else to celebrate. Otherwise, we'd be celebrating you. But we're not celebrating you. We're celebrating Jesus because he is God and he did rise and he does hold the keys to salvation. And so here we see this beautiful scene of Jesus teaching them the word of God and they believe the word of God. And this is why, could I encourage you, if you have friends or family or people who do not see Jesus clearly, it is not because they are ignorant. It is not because they're dumb. 
It's not because they have a less capacity than you. It's because they're blind. They're spiritually blind until the word of God opens up their eyes, which we pray happens, which we pray the word of God would be taught and spoken in such a way to where people see Jesus for who he is. So their eyes are open and they're like, man, we got to tell people that Jesus is alive. Man, we got to share this news. We got to jet back to Jerusalem and let people know the ladies were right. He's alive. He conquered death. Man, sin can be done away with. I mean, all the promises that were said to come in this Messiah Christ, King, Lord, God. Man, it's in the person of this Jesus. Man, Peter said he saw him. He must have been right. So they jet back. They start telling everybody. And the reason this is so important is Luke wants to make sure that everybody has the same story. When you're trying to verify something, everyone has to say the same thing in the sense of all the details. So that's why he covers it. That's why every gospel covers the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in different sides, in different ways, in different forms, all caring about the same story. So there's consistency now. Now it's got weighty evidence. Verse 36. They're back in Jerusalem. As they were talking about these things, they're telling everybody. Jesus himself stood among them. Peace be with you. But they were frightened and startled, and they thought they saw a spirit. By the way, right now there were, there were sayings going around already that Jesus was just a spirit, the disciples saw a ghost, that it wasn't really a, really ma- a man who rose from the dead. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that I myself, touch me, see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see I have. I love this. They get back to Jerusalem, join the other 11 disciples, and they're all in a circle going, Peter said he saw him. The women said they saw he wasn't there. The angels said that he was risen. And then we just saw him for ourselves, and he taught us the scriptures better than anybody ever taught us the Old Testament. And we realize it all centers around him. We realize that, man, he's the one who was going to raise from death. He's the one that accomplished salvation for the sinners of mankind. This is, this is such great news. Jesus is alive. They're freaking out, and boom, he's in the middle of the room again, right with them. I mean, Jesus must love this post-resurrection. And notice, they're frightened, they're scared, they can't believe that Jesus is standing right among them, and they're down, and they're going, is this really him? And he goes, here, touch me, see me, look at my scars. I have bones, I have flesh, I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost, I'm really here, this is really me. Friends, I'm alive, can you imagine their hearts? I mean, imagine a funeral that you've been to where you have weep and wailed and grieved and thought they were gone, and then you see them again. The emotions here are just all over the map. And they see and lay their eyes on Jesus. He says, believe me, touch me if you don't believe me. I'm really here. Verse 40, and when, they, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. That's really generous. And he took it and ate with them. Jesus asked for something to eat. Why does he do that? Because ghosts don't eat food. Spirits don't eat food. I mean, he's just further validating, I'm alive, I'm here. Give me some food. I've been in the grave for three days. Like, don't you think that would make the guy hungry? Yeah, I mean, he's got humanity, right? So, so he's hungry, he wants to eat. They're feeding him, touching him, loving him, probably hugging him, all to validate Jesus is here, he's physical, he's alive, he's among us. So see, it's not enough just to admire Jesus. It's not enough just to simply examine Jesus. We want you to love Jesus, know Jesus, walk with Jesus, and submit to Jesus. Because that's what Jesus demands, to give your life to Jesus. We don't just follow him as an example. And here's why. We don't just follow him as an example. We don't just follow or worship a dead man. That's crazy. And some of you are like, yeah, you're crazy. That's why Paul says we should be the most pitied people if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. This whole thing's a sham. Why are we gathering? Why are we reading the Bible? Why are we singing songs to a dead dude? And this changes Christianity from every belief system on the face of the earth. And you'll have every major belief system. You know what? They all have a founder who's all dead. And you know what they do? They take these amazing sacred pilgrimages to go worship their dead founder who gave some good teachings, was a really good guy, 
but was not God, had no real power, had no real hope to offer, and nowhere life to be found. So you can go to all the grave sites. You can go to Joseph Smith's in Illinois. You know where you're going to find his grave? Joseph Smith. You can go to Medina to look at Muhammad's grave site. You know where you're going to find in Medina? You're going to find Muhammad. You can go to India to look at Buddha's grave site. You know where you're going to find? You're going to find Buddha. You can go everywhere. You know where you're going to find if you go to Israel and go to Jesus' grave or even around there? You know where you're going to find? Nobody! Right? You're not going to find anyone because Jesus is alive. I remember being in Israel around the room, that, the tomb they thought was his, asking the order who was taking us around. Um, hey, so which one's Jesus' tomb? Well, we're pretty sure this is it. We don't really know because, I mean, we don't really know where his body is. I mean, it's like you can't find him. Listen, this whole thing could have been shut down if they just said, oh, here's his body. Understand that. Like that, this whole witness could have just been done with. And we could go on lists and lists and lists of reasons how the disciples became, who once cowards became conquerors and fearless and martyred. And we could do that all day long. But the evidence still remains that no one has ever found Jesus' body. No one knows where his body is. And that's because when you visit the tomb site of this founder of the Christian faith, you will not find him because he is the only one who was God. He is the only one who rose from death. He's the only one who can validate and promise you that he is the only way to eternal life. And so if you're wondering why we're ecstatic, that's why. Why we're excited, why we sing, why we shout, why we're happy is because this Jesus did in fact do that. This Jesus did in fact raise from death. And here's what is amazing. This Jesus is reigning and ruling right now at the right hand of the Father and he is offering forgiveness of sins right now because he's not dead. Like, like he is offering eternal life right now. He's offering your sins to be paid in full, the debt to be paid. He is offering through his personal work alone for all the ways you try to achieve grace and merit and favor with God to be done away with because he rose again. And he can do that right now because he is the son of God. And this is why Luke is going to end this chapter and his book with one great big implication of the resurrection for the church, and that's me and you. If we've repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus. This is why church at Bergen exists. This is why the universal church all across tribes, tongues, nations exists. And this is why if you do not yet know Jesus, we want you to share in this. We want you to know this. Verse 44, then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, Jesus has to do that. The scriptures have to do that. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So you're going to start here. You're going to work your way out. And you're my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. Once he ascends, he's going to send the Holy Spirit of God. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus looks at them and says, I'm alive because what the Bible said would happen, happened. You can trust the Bible. Like like all this that you're witnessing is all that has already been said through the whole Testament, through all the prophets, through Moses, through the Psalms, through every book that was inspired by God to be given to us. Because the Bible centers around Jesus. And he just starts reminding them of the whole Old Testament, the succession of witnesses How he would come, be born of a virgin in Bethlehem before AD 70, live without sin, preach and heal, die through crucifixion, be buried with the rich, resurrect in three days, save sinners from eternal wrath of God, ascend to heaven, one day return, establish a kingdom that will never end. He just starts laying it out for him again. Hey, this is all going to happen. I'm evidence that all of this is going to continue to go the way the Bible says it will go. And he says, because this is true, because the Bible authenticates for itself what it is, In all of that, he says to us, to his church, if none of that is true, then you are all a total sham. Because if he never rose from the dead, there's no forgiveness of sin. If there's no forgiveness of sin, there's no power given from the Holy Spirit. There's no power given from the Holy Spirit, there's no message to testify to. There's no message to testify to, there is no church. 
and we all sit here as idiots. Praise God we don't. Praise God we don't. Which is why Jesus says, this needs to be proclaimed. This good news that if you repent of your sin, that's just a fancy theological term for turning from sin, turning towards Christ. You leave your old life of sin and trust in him who paid that debt for you. You turn to the righteous son of God, not your own righteous works. And you follow him, submit to him, and love him and serve him. That he makes you one with himself, that in his cross your sins die too. And in his resurrection you raise to life as well. Amazing, set free from the pangs of death. This is why Jesus is showing us, um, if you're visiting, this is why we believe, and why we believe as Christians, when we continue together, we don't just need good deeds, we need good news. And this good news doesn't just need to be shown, it needs to be said. And what is that that needs to be said? Jesus just said it, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Then tell people if they repent of their sin and turn to Christ, salvation can be had, life can be found, grace can be extended, a gift can be given that's not earned. Man, you can be made one with God the Father, you can be adopted into his family. All your past, all the wickedness that is past, present, and future coming, he nailed on the cross for you. And all you have to do is bow your knee and say, I realize that he is God, really he pays for my sin, I realize that wrath is towards me, I can't escape it, and I will suffer eternally apart from God in hell if I do not trust in his name. He is a just God, a good God, a loving God, a saving God, and I see this clearly, and I say I want you as mine. I'm turning from my sin. I realize that my sin only leads to decay and destruction, and Christ leads to life and joy and peace and forgiveness and newness. So instead of blaming everything and everyone for sin, repentance says, You own it. We don't blame our parents. We don't blame our jobs. We don't blame genetics. We don't blame experiences. We don't blame circumstances. We just say, no, I am by nature and choice a sinner. I am not good. I do not desire God. I am an idolater. From the beginning of birth, I've wanted to live my life the only way that I want to live it. I want to be God. I don't want anyone infringing on me. And the scriptures say that's the fundamental sin of the universe. And God says, I'm going to restore and make new what you messed up. Praise God, he did. He could have left us alone. He enters human history and he says, instead of excusing sin, you acknowledge your sin and you turn to the only one who's without sin. Jesus. I want to land the plane here with what Luke closes with and give you a text and one thought. I love it because he closes out this gospel with them just worshiping Jesus. All of this culminates into what? Worship. So here's what he writes in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. (laughs) Some of you are going, man, this whole thing's just kind of unusual. Yeah, it is. We agree. Like, and that's why we're so excited. That's why we sing and shout. That's why we're thrilled. Jesus is alive, and he will one day, Colossians says he's preeminent, he's over all things. He will one day fully do away with justice and sorrow and pain and disease and death. He already killed it in the grave, validated through his resurrection. He says, I will return and gather all of mine who are, all those who are mine, and we will rule and reign in a new Jerusalem that he is preparing right now for those who are his to rule and reign with no injustice, no sorrow, no disease, no death, to worship him forever. And we've talked about heaven, how it's not just you with wings flying around playing a harp. Don't believe that. Heaven's where there's good food, curses lifted, man's with God, laughter, joy, work but no toil, great food but you're never hungry, enjoying a physical, real, new created Jerusalem and earth and heavens. And this is him saying he is who he said he was. That's why these followers are rejoicing and elated. Years of teaching, preaching, healing, promising his death and resurrection would come. And here he's telling them to do this and say this and proclaim this, that he was who he said he was. And that's what we're doing here in the year 2017 on April 16th. Right? And this is why they're rejoicing. I can't get this verse out of my head. I'm going to end with this verse. Acts 2, 24. 
Luke writes a second volume after Luke. He writes Luke and Acts. So Acts is the birthing of the church and the expansion of the church. Luke was the life and teachings of Jesus. He points back to the resurrection that he's validating here. And he reminds us as to why they're rejoicing and why we're rejoicing. This is what he writes. God raised him, that's Jesus, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the grave is fully robbed. It totally gives up its prey. And what's awesome is according to John 11 and Revelation 1, Jesus alone has the keys to unlock death. And just as he unlocked it for the Son of God himself, he offers to unlock it for all of us who would repent and believe in his name. Now just to end, here's what that means, the, the, the pangs of death. The pangs of death are not just eternal death. Like, okay, when we die, we're separated from God. I realize I'm going to be without God and all, the, all that stuff. It's also talking about present death. It's talking about your, your present life, living a life of death apart from Jesus Christ. The futility of a life lived almost as a zombie without Jesus. Because here's what the Bible teaches. All of us have hit a moment in our life, all of us, where you realize something was wrong, right? All of us. I mean, all, all of us experienced something. We experienced death. We experienced disease, experienced sickness. We saw a tsunami. We saw earthquakes. We saw famine. We saw destruction. We saw oppression. We saw sin. We've all seen something where we were awakened to in our hearts that something's off, that there's a fracture of some kind, right? Like, like, otherwise, you haven't been living, Right, so, so we've all experienced that. We've all realized that. We've all walked in that. So if, if, let's just take natural evolution. If that's really the real story here, th- then that just means that nature for some reason is trying to off the, 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 the weaker so the strongest can survive, right? That's how the cycle kind of works. So if that's true, if that's just the course of nature, then why are we trying to fix anything? Like, why are we trying to heal anything? I mean, why are we trying to cure cancer? Why are we going to the Middle East? Why are we trying to dig water wells? Why are we trying to take food to Somalia and the ends of the earth? Why are we trying to do anything? Well, that's oppression. Well, well, hold on a second, because that story says that ultimately the strong should kill off the weak so we keep surviving. So, so there's, nothing makes sense in that other than there's something wrong in here that we need to fix. Every time a kid gets sick, something's wrong. Every time you try something outside of Jesus Christ to give you endless joy, endless happiness, whether it's money, possessions, relationships, cars, wealth, appease, greed, prestige, fame, popularity, whatever it is, whatever you chase outside of Jesus Christ that lose steam after a while, something's wrong, something's off, something's broken. There's a fracture of some kind, and what the Bible teaches is what you're being awakened to in that very moment is in Genesis 3 when man rebelled against God and all that was perfect, all life was all that God intended it to be because of their sin and our sin that we inherit through Adam and through Eve as our great, 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 great grandparents, right? We all live in a world where it is not as God intended and Romans 8 says the world creation itself is groaning to get back to the place that your heart actually wants, But you can't have that outside of a resurrected God that was sent in Genesis 3 when that fracture occurred and said, hey, I'm going to send someone to fix all of that and give you life, free you from even a dead life of living in futility and chasing everything that you think will quench your heart, forgive your sin, give you freedom, give you fame, and you trust in Jesus. When you get him, you literally get life. That's why it says the pangs of death that reside in all of us, Christ could not be held by it. He's literally the essence of all that is right, all that is perfect, all that is whole, all that is holy, all that is righteous. He's the essence of all those things. So when you try to do all these other things and believe in all these other things, you're continually not finding more life, you're finding more fracture. And so the Bible is such good news because Jesus Christ could not be held by death. And not just the eternal death that awaits, but the present death that we could still live in without turning to his son. This is amazing, amazing news. So the pangs of death are when you fall prey to the great irony in modern America that says, I can live my life the way I want it, despite the fact that the more you make the world about you, the more bitterness you become, 
the more frustrated you get and the more exhausted you are. Because what happens is when your universe revolves around you and not the risen king, everyone else is on your docket. Everyone else is, has to be to appease you and fill you and serve you so you're endlessly frustrated and discouraged. But Jesus shows the whole world exists for him. The whole world operates for his glory and what he's doing. And the only way this text reminds us to get outside of the death of a life, simply living for yourself and your glory, which leads to a dead life, is by being rescued in the resurrected life of Jesus. <laughs> this is why Jesus says back in Luke 9 in his whole ministry, brothers and sisters, as we land the plane and end this whole book, he said, you want life? Die to your life and live to me. That's why he said that. Because he knows. It's the most freeing message in the world. Your money's not about you. What you have isn't about you. Your body's not about you. Your mind's not about you. What you're given is not about you. All that's made is not about fundamentally you. Yes, God gives us things as good gifts for us to love and cherish and, and steward rightly for his glory, but ultimately, everything that you see, all that you have, is to be rolled back up in worship to his name. And when you use all of those things rightly the way God intended it, you start walking in what the Bible describes as true life as fullness of life. And so if you're not a Christian, you're still in God's story because we're all either a trophy of his grace or a picture of his judgment. We're one or the other. So maybe some of you, you're, you're hearing all this and you're going, I gotta be honest. I mean, I'm guilty of so much. I didn't even wanna show up here because I know my sins, I know my rap sheet, I know. Yeah, you are. <laughs> we all are. We're all guilty of so much. We're all deeply guilty of blaspheming the name of God in different ways, shapes, and forms. And listen, but here's the great news. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. You cannot earn your way back to God, but God did make a way for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you could save yourself, friend, Christ would have died for nothing. And he would have risen for nothing. And Easter would be for nothing. The resurrection is evidence that what occurred on Good Friday is the glad absorption of all of God's wrath to those who would repent of sin and trust in his name. And he says to them, there will be no condemnation for you and you will be awakened to newness and fullness of life. That when you stand before God, he will judge Jesus and not you for your sin. He will declare you righteous. He'll make you holy, spotless, and blameless and credit his son's life and his resurrected life to you. And he'll take your sinful life and kill it in the grave. That's amazing news. Some of you are going, yeah, that's easy for you, pastor. You don't know what I've done? I don't need to know what you've done. You don't know what I've done? Are you in my house? Like, do you walk around me? Do you, do you see this, the, the, the residual effects of the fall that, that, that seep out of me? Uh, do, you, do you see the, the, the things that Christ killed in my life? Do you not see the wicked fantasies that I've had in my mind? Do you not see the things that I have thought, felt, believed? Do you, are you somehow in me? To believe that because I'm up here sharing this is somehow I'm outside of whatever it is that makes your sin greater than mine? And let me tell you, you putting yourself in that space, the Bible will call idolatry to say that you somehow out the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what that means is we should be celebrating you this morning and Christ is still dead. But he's not. And let me encourage you, there are people sitting right around you who have been saved by grace that will make your sins look like preschool sins. Because they believed in something outside of themselves. And Jesus should, no matter what the sin, no matter what the thing that it is, Christ can kill it. And you know what? Find me in 10 years. I'll still be struggling with, with a trajectory of north, pursuing Jesus, repenting of sin, believing in his sacrifice. And so I celebrate. Why? Because every single sin that I have committed and will commit, the entire rap sheet were all sins in the future when Christ went to Calvary. So no one else has any reason for escape. Let's ask God for help this morning. God, we see you as the Lamb of God who would be slain. 
God, we come in this room acknowledging we are not perfect. We cannot appease you through works, through merits, through works, yet Jesus alone shows us that we can be made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Father, I pray that there might be some in this room this morning that through the teaching of the scriptures, you would help them to see you clearly and help them to see their sin as it is. Give you some some time here if if you need to confess sin to God. Maybe you're a a Christian who's walking with Jesus and he stirred up something in you, a, a space in your life that you have not handed to Jesus, that you do not believe he has crucified in his son that did rise from the grave. Maybe there are places in you where you realize he is not your God, he is not your Lord like he deserves and demands. Would you confess that to him and thank him that he's a resurrected Jesus? who continues to forgive sin because he rose again. And if you're one of those people in this room who goes, man, I am just wickedly guilty. Welcome to the club. Because there is a glad God in heaven that longs to forgive sin. That in his mercy and in his grace, he offers no condemnation. And he offers the pangs of death to be loosened and freed up, not just eternally, but right now. He frees us from the enslavement to sin now. He frees us from the bondage of sin now to walk in fullness of life. His message to us this morning, regardless of who we are, is repent for the forgiveness of sin. This is to be proclaimed. thank you that you're alive. We thank you that Jesus is alive. Father, we praise you for Easter Sunday that we get to walk in every day of the week, of every month, of every year, of every year, of every decade. Father, would you continue to make those who are dead spiritually in their sins alive in Christ? Would you bring about repentance for the forgiveness of sin that results in fruit that will last? Father, would you make new some this morning through the saving gospel that you tell us to be witnesses to and of. And Father, may you be praised as we sing and shout and declare and rejoice that you've risen. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.